I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, PBS NewsHour gets into the podcast game with a look at the public defender system in broken justice. Then Netflix is out with Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator, its own documentary on the controversial yoga master. Joining me now to talk about those and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, and yoga enthusiast Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and crazy stars hollow resident, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, that is me. I am like the concierge for uh, Stars Hollow slash Exeter today. And finally, our resident cynic, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and our Patreon book club host and the guy who has two favorite podcasts, one of which ranks number one and one of which ranks number two, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty funny, Whatever. isn't it, Kevin? Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> Toby, do you want to just clear up uh, your Twitter controversy that happened earlier today? My favorite thing on the internet all week. Sorry, Baby Yoda. Dan Taberski, host of Running With Cops, Missing Richard Simmons, and Surviving Y2K, really seems to care that you like his podcast, Toby Ball. Yes or no? Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just another, you know, reason to stick it to me. Um, I think you had said that Running With Cops was your favorite podcast of 2019 Mm -hmm. and then dan was like see toby ball nh and then so i said i said well you were in my top two and then so he found this reply to a tweet earlier today where i had said to leah satilli who was the host of bundyville that i had them as number one and he said there's a tweet for everything <laughs> so hoisted by your own petard. Well, feeling feeling like I had to explain that <laughs> when you're in my top two, that means you could either be number one or number two. No, it doesn't. You never tell the number one person you're in my top two. You tell the number one person you're my favorite. <laughs> so you're my one. Well, from now on, I'm going to say like you're in my top four, regardless of where you actually are. Yeah, there you go. And. Uh, <laughs> So there's a little back and forth where yes. Rebecca was trying to pin me down <laughs> as to oh, where, where, where in the uh, top two he actually fell. 
<laughs> it was it was established that it was number two. <laughs> so anyway, wow, that's okay. I'm just so excited still that you gave two thumbs up to Dan Taberski project because I. Just like Dan Taberski, who should not care what we think about his shows. He absolutely should not. I care very much because he is my favorite, basically my favorite person in podcasting right now, except for maybe Madeline Barron. But anyway. Uh, what yeah, about Dan, Kevin, your husband? Shush. Yeah. Listen, I think Dan- So Ta- Toby, no one cares about Dan Taberski little Kevin Flynn. is the greatest storyteller in podcasting, modern podcasting. And I stand by that. Sorry, I just do. I stand by it. All right. Laura Bricker. Um, yeah. I hear some, excuse my French, shit went down in your perfect little town tonight. Do you want to tell us what happened to you right before this podcast? I saw some crazy antics going on online. I had no idea what was going on. You have to fill us in. Yeah. So first of all, it's the biggest night in Exeter tonight. It is the Holiday Open House Festival of Trees. Santa comes. Live nativity. I decorated a tree this year. So that was very exciting. I had my parrot head tree and the trees get raffled off. So my tree came so with quaint, a- my spine might slide out of my anus. <laughs> listen, no, but listen, Kevin, my tree came with a margarita blender and all everything you needed to make that except for the ice. Okay. Mm. It was a fun tree. But then I wandered up the street. The live nativity was setting up at my church and they have the little pen out front. And Pastor pen. Emily was there and mm. I, they were this this person was like, the uh, animal woman was bringing the animals and all of a sudden this chicken just went crazy and jumped on top of Pastor Emily and wouldn't get off. Oh no. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening, what's happening? And it was just, and it was like puffing up his feathers in this sort of like aggressive manner. And in the middle of that, a rooster jumped out of the pen and ran down the street and oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, and I can't even like go after the rooster because I'm laughing so hard. And this little girl ran down the street and like, tackled the rooster and I was like oh my god and I said like how did you capture that rooster she's like like grabbed it by the legs and like grabbed it I was like oh my god um, I rose so- such a clatter listen she had baby <laughs> Jesus on her side so I have a, I have so many questions but can I just ask you like a basic like two yes. of them yes a are the Jews not represented at all in your tiny town of Exeter, New Hampshire? Yeah, that, that has been an issue. Actually, that has been something that some of my Jewish friends and I have been talking about because, like, there's been a lot of controversy out here on the seacoast, like um, Portsmouth. Yes, I know. I know about, about uh, yeah, interfaith so, displays. No, so now we call it the holiday open house, but that's kind of not really true because it's really the Christmas open house, but they call it the holiday open house, if you know what I mean. Okay, I have a second question for you. Okay, yeah. I, as you know... Am I'm probably the least religious person on the planet Earth. Yes. But I I had in my house growing up a nativity set. And, you know, it had like baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. We'd all fight over who yeah, got to set it up. nativity set, yeah. There were no chickens in that <laughs> nativity set. <laughs> 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 who... There was thought. a lamb. <laughs> there was a lamb and a goat. There was some a horses, cow, a pony, a donkey, uh, some camels, a drummer boy for some reason. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if you all recall. Actually, you might not. The year that at the last minute, this was probably like five or six years ago, um, that people because we also have people dress up and they were like, "Oh my gosh, Mary is sick. We need a stand-in Mary," and I had to be Mary. At the last minute in the live nativity. Yeah, I know. The Virgin Mary? I was the Virgin Mary and the church didn't burst into flames. It was like, it was was like a Christmas miracle. But 
there was no chickens that year. So I don't know where the chickens came from. I think we have a new person doing the animals this year because usually I they, think you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Mocha the chicken was um, did not know the meaning of consent. Clearly, Mocha did not ask. So in Exeter, a pastor was sexually harassed by a chicken. Is that what I'm down with in this? Yes. <laughs> yep. All right. That's all right. What other thoughts can you have? Well, uh, I'll just make a nice segue here into this evening's Patreon promotion, shall I? Uh, in our Patreon after show, which you can download right now in our Patreon feed, you can listen to us in tonight's after show talk about whether or not it is ethical for a police department to make a true crime podcast. Uh, we're also going to be giving our very quick hot takes on season two of The Crown, and maybe there'll be a little bit of Baby Yoda talk. So we'll also, by the way, for our Patreon members, we have a new episode of Mary with Podcast available, a brand new Leave it to Bricker, and a hot on fire new episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Toby, remind us again what uh, book was discussed in the book club podcast that's out right now. Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe, which is about... The troubles in Northern Ireland in like the, from the like the late sixties to the nineties. The troubles, eh? The troubles. Mm. Um, it's Kevin's people. <laughs> My people. Kevin loves it's talking so quaint. about the troubles. It's a guerrilla warfare, and it's like, how do you describe it? It's troubles. <laughs> Just some troubles. It's an excellent book. It's it's super readable. It's really really interesting. And then uh, I had great guests, Maggie Rar from um, uh, What Happened to Holly Bartlett, and then uh, Clara Clark, who teaches at Trinity College at Dublin. Wow. Well, you know, young, handsome Henry Lavoy, our line producer, did get back to me with the report after he edited the podcast that the discussion was fire emoji good. So if right. you want to check that out and all of our other Patreon content, Go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media and for five or six dollars a month, you can get three or four podcasts that we make on the side and it is totally worth it, including tonight's after show and Toby Ball's deep dive, the book club podcast. All right. You guys ready to do some true crime reviews? You bet. You have these honest to God human beings and you know that some of them are slipping through the cracks. This is public defense in America. Hey, here's your 200 cases. You have court in 20 minutes. It's across the street. Uh, go. A huge part of the justice system. You also have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one can be provided. But one that's been struggling for far too long with too many clients. I feel the stress of 150 souls on my back. Not enough money and too few lawyers. A warm body with a pulse and a law license is not enough. PBS NewsHour has released a podcast examining the public defender system in the United States entitled Broken Justice. Frank Carlson and Amna Nawaz look at the issue through the lens of the Missouri Public Defender's Office, one in which attorneys are given more clients than they can ethically handle. In the two years since Jeff started working here, he's gotten used to carrying more than 100 cases at a time. So I have a murder one, two A or B felony drugs, Two attempted murders, one assault in the second degree with a knife that's a stabbing case. 
Its failings are also illustrated by looking at the case of Ricky Kidd, convicted of murder despite rock-solid alibis and statements from the actual killer that Kidd wasn't there. He says the public defender system is to blame for him being in jail. I 100% believe that I'm in prison today because of the Missouri public defender system. If I fight it up in life without possibility of parole, something I didn't even do. While not an issue unfamiliar to true crime podcast listeners, the five-part series shines a light on the no-win situation in which the adversarial system of justice is handicapped by underfunding, overloading, and political apathy. We will be talking about spoilers for Broken Justice, so to skip the discussion and go ahead to our Thumbs Up or Thumbs Down reviews, just go to the time code listed in our show notes. Lara Bricker, I was listening to this podcast the whole time, and you were the only person I could think about. You used to work for the public defender's office. Yes. What did you think of the case that they picked to focus on in this podcast and the way this was framed as a look at an underfunded public defender system. Go, Lara Bricker. Well, I thought this case was like such an ideal case. And when I first started listening to this, I was like, this is the type of case that Serial Season 3 should have found. This was a case where clearly, as it played out, and you hear about the circumstances of Ricky Kidd's conviction and how there was clearly evidence right up front that he was not the person who committed this murder, um, but then you realize that actually this is a case where it wasn't like one of those cases where years later someone's exonerated because DNA evidence. They had the evidence. The lawyer just simply was so overworked and overburdened and didn't have the resources to properly like investigate and defend the case. I thought this was like a perfect case um, because it really showed what a lack of time could do in terms of the outcome for a case and not being able to really devote yourself to really thoroughly fleshing out the entire case and doing everything you needed to do because they had the damn information. It was so crazy. So yeah, I felt really bad when I was listening to this for Ricky, but also for the public defenders because they all mean well and they're there for a reason. And when they're not given the proper support, it like my rage bells just started going off. Can I ask you a follow-up question, Laura? No offense, boys, but I have another question for Laura. Yeah. One of the details that we hear in this podcast, you know, the public defenders are really overworked. They have way too many cases. Their office is super underfunded. They can't get any money to hire more lawyers. So it's literally like they have to triage everything. Um, you were a defense investigator for a public defender's office. Yes. What did you think when you heard that a lawyer who had a murder case in his portfolio was not able to even begin investigating the case and looking into the facts of the case until a year and a half after the crime actually occurred? That's just fucking ridiculous. I mean, that is just absolutely not right. But it also was really a really good example of just how backed up and understaffed they were if that was how long it took you to get to a case. You know, I worked for the New Hampshire Public Defender System, and they are actually a model as like one of the best public defender systems in the country in terms of the support that they give their staff and their personnel and the way they manage their caseloads. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of serves in as, as an example of how the system can work well. Because um, I know, like, to our South, Massachusetts doesn't have those resources. So, I mean, when I worked there, like, if I had a murder case and we got the case and the person was at arraignment, I would be out working on that case, like, as soon as that person went to court for that first arraignment. Um, so hearing that a year and a half later they were finally getting to the case, you're never going to find the witnesses. You need to get to people right away. You need to take pictures. You need to, I mean, it, it was it was a good example 
um, because it showed how that system is really broken. Now, Kevin, I want to talk about the formatics of the podcast a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is a PBS NewsHour product. I think it sounds a lot like it, right? Uh, what do you mean, like a very well, public media? It's very it, well, public TV. It's it's like PBS NewsHour-ish. It's pretty dry. It's pretty straightforward. It's very news magazine in its presentation. It's like a long news feature type presentation. But the one thing that they do here, which we talked about in another recent podcast that we covered, is they do make this choice to have the two host format. You know, right. they have Omna in the studio doing sort of like the debriefing. And then they have Frank, who seems to be the one out there doing the reporting and just sort of having these conversations with her in the studio where they're kind of he's answering her mm -hmm. questions and then we're like going to tape of him. Frank, this right to a free council for poor people. We haven't had it forever. Where does it come from? Well, it all starts with the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. That's the one that deals with trials. It says in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. And then I'm going to skip ahead to the end because this is the part we care about, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. That sounds like you get the right to a lawyer, no matter what, whether you can afford one or not. Do you think that format worked for this story? I do like that format. It works very well, say, on The Daily, or probably best on uh, Radiolab, uh, where the host or hosts act as sort of the, uh, the Greek chorus or the audience. And so they're asking the questions that push the rest of the narrative along, and I think that they did that here, and it was set up pretty good. I just think that Omna didn't sell it, you know, even in those things like the Daily and Radio Lab. When someone asks the question, well, what does that mean? That's a scripted line. They already know what that means. It's intended to set up the next bullet point on the chart here. It just didn't, like, really sell the performance of, like, yeah. you know, these rhetorical questions and, like, Oh, that makes me think of this. You know, it just that part wasn't performed. Are you saying that yeah. they didn't have enough funding to do this investigation properly? Yeah, but I will say, <laughs> look, I'll say it wasn't bad enough that it kills the podcast or their interaction or certainly the larger reporting that gets done in this. No, I agree. That's a quibble for me. It's not a yeah. it's not a it's not a, you know, thumbs down problem, but it is problematic. It's the only thing I rolled my eyes at. How's it is, that? but I will say it is problematic only because if there was an editor, you would think they would have heard that and they would have said, "Hey, can you guys just like have this conversation I, again?" I actually brainstormed this in the car listening to this. They have it scripted out. I would have had them read it. And then I would have them look at the script and put it face down and say, do it again. Have the conversation. Or just I, ask the question. Yeah. But if, but if you're not reading it or if you're just trying to come off, you're just going to sound, I don't know. That's my podcast coaching advice. Instead of reading it, try to come up with it off the top of your head again. You know where you're going to go. It's going to sound more natural. Can we just give a plug for a podcast that's doing that super well right now? I don't want to be like self-promotional, but Stranglehold from New Hampshire Public Radio uh -huh. is doing those debriefs, those, those host to reporter debriefs so well because they're doing exactly that i mean i know the process it's like hey let's go in the studio and talk about this they have bullet points not scripted questions that is the way to do this and i will tell the pbs news hour team if you're listening your podcast is pretty good but like don't make it so you have to lean that, that into the conversational part that's right. of the broadcast performance that's right and that's why someone like jab adam rod that we hear doing the dolly part one for example he's still flexing that muscle right he can really sort of lean into the idea of like oh yeah 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 and just uh, so this means this and it's pre-planned but it sounds extemporaneous right and it sounds sincere anyhow 
That's a lot of time to talk about that quibble, but that is the quibble I had. Listen, Toby also sent me a note that this podcast is very on brand for PBS NewsHour. What did you mean by that, Toby? Seventy-year-olds are going to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's like a it's a it's like a super long news report with a little bit of heartstrings being pulled. <laughs> now, Toby, one of the things that you also wrote to me, which I find very interesting and a provocative statement, is your reaction to this podcast is there probably shouldn't be any private defense attorneys. Please explain that point of view. So I I think the big question is, how do you get public defenders adequate resources and just enough public defenders? And the people who rely on public defenders are the least sort of influential people in our society, right? I mean, it's, it's mostly very poor people. And then there's racial disparities and things like that. And I feel as though to have the political will to adequately, on a national basis, adequately fund public defenders' offices, it's got to be the place where everybody has to go if they're accused of a crime. So unless middle-class people, unless lawmakers feel like they or people in their family or their friends would have to be served by the public defender's office. If they can't envision that, I think it's less of a priority for them. So I guess that was kind of that was kind of my feeling is if everybody had to be, if there was a state run, just like there's a state prosecutor, there was a state defender's office that had to take on all the cases that you would have it adequately funded. And I think it would lead to, I mean, it would inevitably lead to a fairer system, right? Because just like almost everything else in our country, if you're wealthy, you have a very different experience in court. In my America, there will be no more private lawyers, no more (laughs) private defense attorneys. Yeah, exactly. Everyone gets the same attorney. But I I think it's true in that there's not a whole lot of rich dudes on on death row, right? Mm, I mean, it's- Well, there was, and it was so interesting because in New Hampshire, we had two cases at the same time, the first two death penalty cases to go to trial in New Hampshire in 50 years, and one of them had the public defenders, and one of them was this guy, and I covered that trial, was this like millionaire inventor guy who invented like some surgical device tray holding thing. Murder for hire. And he had these like high powered death penalty lawyers that came in from like Illinois. But you know, the public defenders did a tremendous job. They they I dedicated and they got special funding from the state to be able to handle that case here. So yeah, it was a really interesting sort of case study in like, what is the difference? Like, here's this guy. And like, I remember at the end during the sentencing portion, um, where they were arguing, you know, life or death after he had been found guilty. He had this like, elaborate video montage with music that they had put together like he played like the saxophone or something so he shouldn't die and it was like this whole thing and like I'm like okay so this guy but if he played the accordion (laughs) guillotine but I was like I remember sitting there watching that and being like Okay, so he had some money to put towards this little video montage that the guy who had the public defenders did not have. That's you right. Know? That's right. <laughs> well, and side yeah. note, the guy with the public defenders was black. And, and yes. killed a cop. And yes, yeah. but he's the so only- They're not apples to oranges comparisons, but We have the a point murder for hire yeah. and a, um, a somebody who killed a police officer, both death penalty eligible cases in New Hampshire at the time. New Hampshire has since abolished the death penalty just this past year. But with the only death row inmate in New Hampshire is black in the second whitest state in the United States. And 
I'm not saying that that means a specific thing in in that case, but it was very interesting to watch those two things run in parallel. And that's a really good example, Lara. Toby, what were you saying just now? Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, without getting too far away from this actual show, that our judicial system is so weighted that, and I was I was just actually talking to somebody a couple of days ago about how when we were doing Making a Murderer and we were talking about uh, Brendan Dassey and then that was when that affluenza kid in Texas got off. There, there's so many weights that are in favor of white people and people who aren't poor that as I talk about it more, I kind of like this like public defenders for everybody. It's never going to be fair, but to make it fairer so that everybody has to use the same system and there's not two different systems, one of which is way, way, way overworked that's available for people without money. And then people have money, you know, the best defense money can buy. And that tends to get you off. Now, Toby, about in the middle of the story, we hear about the public defenders in Missouri fighting back trying to get the money that they were promised. The governor, of course, vetoes the funding package that was passed by the legislature. And the head of the public defender system decides that he's just going to go ahead and exercise his power because apparently he can uh, appoint any lawyer in the state to defend a case. He decides to try to get the governor appointed as a public defender in a murder case. What did you think of that as a tactic? Of course, we hear it didn't work because the governor uh, was able to win in court and said didn't have to. But was that not like a pretty profound statement uh, that that guy was making there? Yeah, I, you know, there's a fine line between publicity stunt and profound statement. And I'm not sure where he fall, <laughs> where he, where on that line he falls. But I mean, I think the point is there. And again, it's insane making, right? In that I, I, I don't know much about Missouri politics. My guess is they didn't want to raise taxes on the wealthiest citizens uh, that would need to happen in order to adequately fund the public defender's office. So, you know, as much as you can point that out and hopefully humiliate people who are advocating for that position. And was that that Greitens guy? Mm, Is that that governor? Like he's without getting political about it, like he was not above political stunts himself. You know, sort of the problem here, they didn't really touch on it too much, was sort of the political will around funding for this stuff. They talk about it a little bit, but no one wants to be the politician who's behind the bill that facilitates a murderer going free. And one of their constituents looking at them and saying, you know, my daughter was murdered and you did the thing and he got off and blah, 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 blah. There's a whole thing about political will there that nobody really wants to be the one to sign on yeah, to but that. Ironically, as this podcast points out, and as many other things that we've watched and reviewed have pointed out, criminal justice reform is a bipartisan issue. It has bipartisan support in a way that almost no other... Well, it is coming. Yeah. But but this is what this is why we've gotten here. Hmm. Look, to this day, even in New Hampshire, with you know this fantastic public defender's office, I've been at governor council meetings where they're accepting grant money. Grant money from the federal government to help something with the public defender's office and they're reluctant to approve it. Right. And that the attorney general has to come in and speak side by side and explain, look, good defense equals good convictions. Right. Right. And that's an important thing we should remember. If you want the guys who are supposed to stay in jail to stay in jail, then you make sure that they have a proper defense. Correct. You don't go and get your conviction overturned, usually because you have a better argument. You rarely find new evidence. The thing that gets you you overturned is 
mistakes by the court or by the prosecutor or, or by, by your, your lawyer. own right. yeah or about like, legal mistakes right so if you can minimize legal mistakes you're going to have better convictions it's, it's, there was still this reluctance because the perception uh, the perception that you're siding with the bad guys it's really, they even rejected yeah a district court judge because she had come up in the public defender that's system that's right i remember that right and you got to spread that out across the country places where these officials are elected right and they they, they directly you know face the voters it's just this this adversarial system is not set up to be equal. It'd be great if they said, for every dollar you spend on the prosecutors, you got to spend it on public defense. That's a really interesting point, Kevin. And it's something that I think that, you know, we hear about this guy who's elected to be the head prosecutor in this community who came from Ferguson, you know, the, D, the new DA who has all these interesting reform ideas. And he makes that great statement or, you know, we hear in the podcast like uh, we're not great at distinguishing between who we're mad at versus mm-hmm. who we fear. Yeah. You want convictions to be good convictions. And I think that anybody who like is familiar with New Hampshire politics knows that like funding things and resourcing things is not this state's forte. We don't have an income tax, for instance. We don't have like a lot of revenue sources. This one area where it is funded well, like when is the last time you heard about like an overturned like high profile conviction in New Hampshire? Like it just doesn't happen because the AG's office has to work harder to get more evidence to arrest the right person because they know they're going to be up against a real adversary in court with these strong public defenders. It makes a difference in, in securing their, real convictions. Their philosophy is to not bring the charge if they don't if they're not hundred percent sure. So as opposed to some places we're gonna we're gonna make this stick and then they end up getting the wrong guy, they would much prefer to let the crime stay open and unsolved. All right. So can we move on to Ricky Kidd and talk about that case for a minute? Yeah, let's do that. Uh Laura, you thought this case was really compelling. We have Ricky Kidd who not only had a strong alibi that included him going to the sheriff's office to apply for a gun permit on the day of the murder. He also was a co-defendant in his trial with a guy who apparently was guilty of the murder, who knew who the actual murderers were and later said that Ricky Kidd didn't do it. And Ricky knew this. He had evidence to show it. And yet no one was able to do anything because his lawyer had no Resources, And I will say in Ricky Kidd's unbelievable like charity like thing that he does in this podcast is we hear from his original um, public defender. He points to the lack of resources. He points to the lack of bandwidth when I honestly do think he actually could maybe point a finger at her a little bit. But he doesn't yeah. do that. Yeah. What did you think about that? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And they talked he talked about that in the last episode or somebody did. I can't remember about how. You know, you would think somebody that spent more than like two decades in prison for a crime they didn't commit would become like jaded and bitter and angry. And and he wasn't. And he is now out instead of putting this all behind him. He's like gone on the road to talk about this and, and like advocate for changes. And and he talked about why, you know, why that was possible was because he didn't adopt like this jailhouse mentality when he was in prison, which was like, he was always like, I know I'm going to get out. I know I didn't do this. And he didn't get sucked into, I don't want to call it the drama, but he didn't get sucked into that mindset, which is amazing because, I mean, I can't imagine like the sort of mental capacity that you would have to have to be able to just sort of have the faith that you're going to get out. His his kind of person and his, his uh, character that really struck me was this detail when he got out and he was talking about having a real toothbrush again. Yeah. 
I see trees. I see a bath um, that I had this morning that I haven't taken in 23 years. Um, I woke up and brushed my teeth with a real toothbrush this morning, a real extended toothbrush. It even had a button on it that could and I brushed my teeth this morning the longest. I didn't want to stop rushing. <laughs> it was like heartbreaking, just absolutely heartbreaking. But I think that was like the other thing that made this case so compelling is that you not only have somebody that's an innocent person in jail, you have somebody that is an innocent person who remained kind and, uh, you know, didn't adopt this just attitude that, that you would expect them to have after being wrongfully convicted. That any of us would have, probably, let's be yeah, real. Yeah, I would have been like, yep, yeah, okay. I, I, I just, I would have been bitter and angry. And he, I, so... I mean, good for him. I don't know how he did that, but that that was pretty amazing. Now, Toby, uh, Ricky finally gets justice, but it's in large part because he has a fancy lawyer basically parachute in and kind of save the day. I mean, his case gets taken up by somebody who, you know, has the time and resources and money, frankly, to sometimes take on cases where the defendants don't have to pay. What do you think about that? Does that help or hurt the system when you have these kind of parachute-in moments by these white knight lawyers who are able to finally get the right thing done? I guess it depends on how you look at it. Like, in some ways, it's a very effective, you know, exception that proves the rule. Like, these lawyers cherry-pick their cases, obviously. But when you do have lawyers with the proper resources and whatever, they can get these guys off. So in, in that way, I think it exposes the system. But if you've been wrongly convicted and you're in prison, like you just got to kind of cross your fingers that through the luck of the draw, you get one of those people, right? Depending, like I could see people looking at it and be like, see, the system works. You know, they, they found this guy, uh, they took a look at his case, and then they got it, they, they, they freed him. But I think the reality is, it's just if he had had proper representation to begin with, you know, he'd probably have 23 years of his life back. And as you pointed out, and I agree with you in your note, the new DA in, in that jurisdiction, he just seems rational, which makes him a vanguard. And that says a lot. You know, somebody who just has, you know, you all have to listen to a couple of podcasts to have the ideas that he has. And yet he's seen as a maverick. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's go ahead and give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to Broken Justice from PBS NewsHour. It's a five-part podcast that looks at one case to sort of tear apart the flaws in the public defender system nationwide. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Broken Justice. I'm going to go with thumbs up because I, you know, like I've said, I think that this case is a really good case to use in as, as an example as to how the system failed. Um, it was, you know, a really compelling person. Um, we had access to a lot of people. It, you know, my only criticism of this is I feel like, you know, it was like competent. It was well done. They had all the information, but there was, you know, not that same sort of emotional sort of connection that you might have with like Serial where the hosts put a little bit more of themselves into the podcast. So it felt a little bit sterile in that area. But at the same time, it was just it was really well done. And the story was a story that needed to be told. So thumbs up. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Broken Justice? from PBS NewsHour. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up too. Um, I think it's a it's a really important issue. It's very well reported. You know, it's dry. I think your guys' criticisms at the beginning of the segment uh, are right on. But, it, you know, it, it's such an important issue. 
And I, I think, like, even if you know quite a bit about it, I think you, you, you still learn something. And the, the central story of um, Ricky Kid it's interesting uh, and does give it sort of a, you know, a focus and sort of a heart at the center of it. I'm also a thumbs up. My uh, quibbles with this podcast are just those. They're quibbles. I don't love the two ways between the host and the reporter, especially when you hear the host doing other interstitial narration, like when she talks about go back and listen to earlier episodes, she sounds like a real person. And I wish that the podcast would allow uh, both her and, you know, our primary reporter to bring more of themselves to the conversation. I think that is okay to do in this kind of reporting. It doesn't have to be fun, but it should feel organic. My only other quibble, and it's a slight one, is I do not love the discount Gangster's Paradise knockoff theme song of this podcast. (laughs) Other than that, it's a strong piece of reporting from a public media outlet and a public media production that I really admire. Um, I think Broken Justice is a good podcast, and I think listeners of this podcast will like it, so I give it a thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? I am also a thumbs up. I think it's a good look at an important, complex issue, and it's good to sort of tell that by going small so that way you can tell the bigger story by focusing here on Missouri in particular. I mean, I think much of the problem here that we didn't touch on, what they didn't touch on, has to do with the overcharging by prosecutors who are flooding the system with these cases. And it does make me reevaluate my thoughts about Serial Season 3. And, you know, going into Broken Justice, I feel like I already had a good education about what the issues were So I I wasn't in the remedial justice class here. One of the things that I just, that they didn't go into here, but they did in Serial Season 3 has to do with plea bargains and that whole part of the system. And as it's a way to just relieve the pressure on the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, because the sausage factory just keeps kicking out, uh, you know, new cases every day. It makes me think back to Serial Season 3 and thinking it's better than I had remembered it being. Mm. And this in and of itself, Broken Justice, is a good podcast. And this journalism is strong, takes us to a bunch of different places, and it's why I think it's, it's really good. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Moving on. 
ESPN's 30 for 30 Bikram was one of the best podcast series of 2018. Now Netflix puts the visuals to the story in its Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator. This is what's happening in Beverly Hills. There's a yoga college of India and the man who runs it is Yogi Bikram. You've never really done yoga until you've done a Bikram class. With millions in the bank and millions of followers, Bikram is doing something right. People would say, what's he like? And I would say, he sees himself as a cross between Mother Teresa and Howard Stern. The 85-minute documentary chronicles the rise of the self-made yoga master to the stars who founded the hot yoga movement. He was a teacher who was going to make me perfect. He saw potential in you that you might not see. But he has a really ugly side. He looked at me and said, suck that fat stomach in. I don't like to see the jiggle jiggle. The film details how Bikram Chaudhary used his position to prey on his students who had professional and financial pressures to please him. We also hear from his followers who are either ambivalent or indifferent to the accusations against him. I don't want to say that I was brainwashed, but that's what was happening. There was a camp that was going to hang him by his nails. And there was a camp that was saying these girls asked for it. It was really hard because... I wouldn't be the person who I am today without him. Bikram, yogi guru predator, uses historical footage and a ton of video from inside Bikram's world to reveal his charisma and to illustrate what it was like to be in his circle. Now, we will be talking about plot points from Bikram, yogi guru predator. So to stay spoiler free, just go to the estimated time code listed in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, Toby, how difficult is it to watch a documentary like this when we've already listened to an outstanding podcast about it and you kind of know the bones of this story? Did you find yourself having to do a little etch-a-sketch and just like pretend you didn't hear the podcast? How did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I think for this review, kind of have to pretend that the podcast didn't happen. You know, I love I, I love the Bikram podcast. And fortunately, you know, I, I think this documentary is good, so it's not like a huge letdown or whatever. Although I like the podcast better still, um, <laughs> but it, but it is. I mean, it's it, it is. You know, you're watching. If you've listened to the podcast, you're watching a story that you've you've heard about before. It's interesting putting visuals um, to what you've only heard. I, I think the main thing that this added for me, at least, was a chance to see like Bikram in action. Um, and, and just really get a sense for him because yoga is a, you know, it's a very physical thing and to be able to see it in action, I think lent something to my understanding of the story. To me, I think seeing his students in action lent something to the understanding of the story for me. As we heard in the podcast and a lot of the same, by the way, sources, uh, from the podcast, this to this documentary, I think almost identical sourcing happening, but to see these star students and what they could do and the way that he treated them, but to see it on film. Kevin, what did you think of all of that footage that this documentary gave us access to of actually seeing him in action, not just two ways describing it, then to, seeing to it. To be in the, yeah, yeah, it's very much like in uh, a wild, wild country, sort of be there in the moment at the time. No reenactments, no actors in slow motion, bare feet going down a, you know, <laughs> walking towards the hotel room or whatever. Although I think we did probably had some of that. But uh, I, I thought that uh, that was the real difference maker 
in this documentary. You know, it's sort of unfair because we've done we've had a couple of projects like this where we see a separate podcast and a documentary or a movie and a documentary. There's the Ted Bundy tapes, uh, the dropout, you know, all the O.J. Simpson stuff, uh, John Benet Ramsey. There's going to be a um, an Aaron Hernandez documentary series that's going to come out just like Gladiator. It's kind of unfair to see the second one because you're always comparing it against the first one. So I just have to kind of like, yeah, erase, do the erase a sketch. Uh, Etch a sketch, sketch of your brain, shake your yeah. head. Yeah, because it's not fair to like criticize the first one. But I mean, this did cover a lot of the same ground. But for me, because we get to see him and see how he's acting and see for ourselves you're able to bear witness to the story much better. Now, Laura, you had an interesting conversation about this documentary at your Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, Talk about that and like what insight that gave you into this story. Yeah, so it was so interesting. I was talking to um, one of our family friends, Wendy, and I did not know that she used to own a yoga studio um, before she moved here. She owned a yoga studio for seven years, and she's like, oh, I was watching that Bikram thing, and it was really, really nuts. And she's like, you know, we had this yoga instructor at our studio that was a guy that was kind of nuts like that. But, you know, he was there for a number of years because he was a really good yoga instructor. And so people kind of like, turned a blind eye to the crazy behavior. But there is something. And so we were talking about like, you know, when you have a good instructor and an instructor has a following, sometimes things do escalate and continue on for longer than they should. I mean, and I can say like, I don't know about you guys, but if you have like, if you ever go to like a group exercise class, and I think we talked about this with like the Richard Simmons thing, and you have a, an instructor that's that's a good, you want to follow them. So there, but it was interesting, like she was saying, they ended up buying like a mattress for this guy or something because he was like, I don't like the mattresses in your house. And they were like, later, like, what the fuck were we doing? Like, we bought a mattress for that guy. And and so I did have a hard time, though, where Bikram was just so off the charts, like the people that continued to follow him, even as he was acting the way he was acting. Um, but I, I don't know. Yoga brain? I don't know. It's, it's baffling. Now, Toby, Bikram, I think we all agree, was, is kind of a crazy narcissist. There's an amazing shot in the documentary, which to me basically sums up all you need to know about this guy. His entire practice is around the temperature of the room, the hot yoga, the specificity of all of these poses and all of these rituals and everyone has to listen to him sit there and tell these long ass stories and it's all very specific and driven by him. And here he is sitting in the front of this like 105 degree room with a personal air conditioner <laughs> duct pointing to his own head. Uh, Toby, what do you think of this guy's personality and and just what we can learn just by seeing him do the stuff that he did? Uh, super awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what I found kind of interesting, and I, and I guess there's there's a certain charisma to him, but it seemed like, you know, I, I think people came into it with an expectation of what they were going to see with him. Um, and like, so for example, the one guy who they talked to, and I can't remember what his name is, but who's a Bikram instructor. And he was like, I used to be really chubby and, you know, I was in the second row and Bikram like looked at me and was like, oh, you fat fuck, you know, I don't want to look at your disgusting, you know, whatever. I can't remember exactly what it was, but that was along those lines. And he was like, that was exactly what I needed to hear. 
And I'm like, I don't think so, dude. I, I feel <laughs> though you probably have heard that before, but just because you came in believing that like Bikram was going to be able to see more deeply into you or whatever, that you accepted it from him. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe these moves are super powerful uh, or whatever that woman was saying. But to me, and I, and I wish they'd spent a little bit more time on this. You know, he created this kind of persona from the beginning with like the first person I dealt with was Richard Nixon and I healed him <laughs> and he gave me like a special green card and I didn't even have to apply and and all this stuff. And it's just total bullshit. I mean, he's probably different. Like if A, you're really into it and B, you're there in person, like exhausted and sweaty and you need to pee, but you can't. <laughs> And he's just like rambling on and on about something like maybe there's some charisma in that. And it seems like it's kind of uh, classic kind of cult stuff in that way. But, you know, I think a lot of it is like people's expectations of what what the experience that they're going to have is and that he doesn't actually have to do much to fulfill that. Toby, he jumps on top of people and stands up there. I mean, come on. Yeah, the, stand, the standing on people's hip bones. Is well, a, they're like on their heads. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. their necks are going to crack. They're going to die. It was I couldn't watch it. Now, Kevin, you and I did talk to the director and one like primary sources documentary for the Netflix podcast. Yeah. You can't make this up. And I kept when I was watching this, I couldn't help but make comparisons to Wild Wild Country. And we actually learned from Mickey that there were a bunch of people from the Rajneesis who like went and joined this whole Bikram situation. Because it's kind of cultish. Yeah, because yeah. it's basically <laughs> the same thing. And I guess there's this whole like self-actualization, become a better person obsession that both attracted people to the Rajneesis community and to the Bikram community. And so, you know, I don't think it's hugely surprising but the other thing that they have in common is the depositions that we see on film <laughs> here <Are awesome. laughs> where he's being sued he just can't deal and he didn't like being forced to sit in a chair and answer questions particularly from a woman don't stop me when i'm talking this is where the judge please please don't stop me poor behavior you are behavior who is behavior talking about behavior? Do you know how to spell behavior? You are the most misbehaved person I ever met in my entire life. I thought, this is great. Keep going. You can take a brass and polish thousand years. It's never going to be gold. Would you, you like to take, take a, a break, Mr. Chandler? You cannot take a donkey and train for hundred years. It's never could be a horse. Yeah, he can't bear to have his worldview challenged. You know, it's, it's a defense mechanism, avoidance. He didn't want to go to any of those depositions, obviously. And, you know, he threatened to walk out and walks out on them and tries to humiliate um, the other attorney. You find out it's much more than just a tactic when he actually goes to trial and he's during cross-examination. All of his crazy bullshit ideas about you know, the Rolls Royces and the money that he got from the governor to build a school. And what kind of school? That's for so kids can build me more Rolls Royces. It was oh just, my God. it was just fucking weird. I, I just keep wondering, you know, all of Bikram's accusers came forward. And by the way, like good on them because their livelihood. I mean, it's not dissimilar to, you know, the Weinstein stuff 
where, you know, actresses were basically stripped of their livelihood if they said anything. I mean, these women had built their lives around being teachers of his practice and around being star students of his practice. They came forward with their accusations and they became then pariahs in that community. And this is like when you look at the timeline, it's pre Me Too. Right. And this documentary is sort of landing in the height of Me Too. And, you know, that's sort of very interesting when you look at this, because I feel like right now we're more primed as consumers of this kind of news to be like, of course you should say something. Of course he shouldn't have this power. And yet, as the podcast taught us, 30 for 30 and this documentary shows us, he still does operate with some power and impunity around the world. He still has followers. He still has defenders. He still has students who say, well, maybe that happened, but he changed my life. Yeah, that's bullshit. Laura, what do you think? That was the thing that I had the hardest time with in this at the end where we have that woman that we've been hearing from all along. And at the end, she has the big reveal and she's like, well, I'm happy he's still teaching class. What is wrong with you? I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, are you like, no, like, who are these people that still think it's okay to go to his freaking teacher trainings? Like, I just I could not wrap my head around how I mean, because it is not a secret in the yoga community what this guy has done. And the fact that he's and there still, are other kinds of fucking exercise you can do. It does not have to be this one. You thing. don't have to go it to crazy oh, it does. yoga. <laughs> I go to I go to nice I go to nice happy yoga, and we don't do any of this shit there. I'm like, no, this is bullshit. It doesn't smell like an ass. But that was I, I'm just like I left this at the end of the documentary, and I'm like, so when they show the video of these people in where was it Spain, like in 2019, going to his teacher trainings, I'm like. What is wrong with you people? What the fuck is wrong with you? Sorry, but that was like ridiculous. Toby has an answer because it's a cult, right, Toby? It's absolutely a cult. I I don't know what your argument is against it being a cult. (laughs) It's got like... They get to go home. Like the leader who's got access to... uh, you know, mystical information that other people don't have. Mm. He sits up on a freaking a platform it. above everybody <laughs> in like a beanbag chair with his personal air conditioner. Um, Bhagwan didn't have a Speedo. Yeah, it's like, you know, oh, you talk to him and, you know, he can figure you out right away. And he says these things. And it's so wonderful to spend time with him. And I go up and I uh-huh. massage his feet for a little while. And, Gross. You know, there's a whole line of us waiting Sounds to massage like you and I, his feet. Rebecca. <laughs> it's like it's like of course it's a cult and then like even like the the stuff like i was saying before it's like you know you can't leave to pee that's like in the handbook mm, the cult know? handbook I mean, yeah. the cult handbook it's like don't let people pee i don't know why that works but it does and like these grueling like exhausting marathon sessions of stuff again it's like that's the cult handbook. By the way, the new $30 Patreon level is you get to rub Toby Ball's feet. <laughs> yes. Yes. Peloton with Toby Ball. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so scared. Okay, here I go. See you in a year. By the way. I'm just a fat whale. By the way, our line editor, Henry Lavoie, who knows a lot of people who do Peloton, and so do I, by the way. He actually believes that's also a cult, and I'm not 100% convinced it's not. Anyway, sorry, listeners who love Peloton. But there is a thing about, um, like, one, the one singular thing that works for you. And in this case, it's 
a form of exercise. But that is the cult thing, right? This is the only thing that works for me. This is the only thing that can make me feel good. It's the only thing that changes my life. Like, it's not a healthy approach to anything, including exercise. I mean, anybody who does exercise know it's good to know it's good to do a variety of things. It's good to mix it up. And just to be clear, like because you do hot yoga doesn't mean you're like a member of a cult. I think it's this very intense inner circle. And I think it's mostly these these trainers. They buy into that stuff. And he's treated the way you would expect a cult leader to be treated. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to this new documentary from Netflix, Bikram Yogi Guru Predator. Very descriptive title. Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down for you for this new look at the Bikram scandal. Uh, I'm going to go with thumbs up. You know, I liked the podcast. It was it was obviously a lot longer than this. I liked that I was able to get in and out of this story in like an hour and a half. But I think having the visual of Bikram and just watching him in action and hearing his voice and like seeing some of these classes and, and like the behind the scenes added so much to the story here. And I'm also going to say this is a plug for like rage exercising after you watch this because there's some things that made me really angry again watching this story. But I think it was well done. Um, So I would say thumbs up. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator from Netflix? Uh, Yeah, I I think it's a thumbs up. And I I think it's it's probably a strong thumbs up because I, I thought the podcast was so strong that I was expecting to be disappointed and I wasn't. Um, I, I think the story is told, you know, very efficiently. I think that the visuals are great, and I, I feel like you come away with a with a pretty good sense of of what was going on. I totally agree. Thumbs up for me too for Bikram Yogi Guru Predator. I almost wish this had dropped like contemporaneously with the podcast because I would have watched it at the same time because the one thing that's brilliant about the podcast is that they do such a wonderful job explaining why people are so into this. And with audio, you have to. Mm-hmm. And with the visuals, you can do less of that because you can actually see the exalted looks on the faces of these hundreds of students that look like they smell terrible <laughs> in these classes. Um, but I really liked this documentary. I thought it was well done, very tight, well put together. I loved all the two ways. So, yeah, thumbs up for me. What about you, Kevin? It's going to be eight for eight. I'm a thumbs up as well. Wow, eight for eight. I thought that this documentary, unlike the podcast, was a little more focused on Bikram. Or the, I thought the podcast was a little more victim-focused. And it was an opportunity to really tell the victims' stories because of the resources and the time and, you know, the format of this story. They have the victims tell their stories. But this is predominantly about Bikram and about the cautionary tale of a figure like this. The footage they have is incredible. Yeah. So I think it's okay that that's sort of the the focus. They don't, don't, I wouldn't say they give short shrift to the victims, but they don't focus as much on their story and their truth as in the podcast. That all being said, I still think it's a quality documentary. It's an interesting beef in the subculture. Yes. <laughs> no, a, a, a war between subcultures. War, yeah, what the, is the thing that you like, Toby? Feud in the subculture. Yeah. <laughs> a feud between two subcultures. It's like his favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this whole riff in that the, in the subculture there of hot yoga, I thought was just fascinating. And it's a, it's really well done. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. 
On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. Crime of the week. Sometimes these things just write themselves. An Indiana man was arrested last week after a car chase. They say Donald Preston Murray had been a fugitive for a few days. It's hard to see how he could lay low for so long since he had a giant tattoo across his forehead that says, ready for this? Yeah. Crime pays. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not a delicate, incursive inscription. It was 60-point Times New Roman, big, bold, spanning temple-to-temple tattoo. You can't miss it. It's not so much that this guy had, quote, habitual offender written all over his face. It's that he didn't have enough room to include doesn't. <laughs> all right. So, panel, a wanted man getting a face tattoo that says crime pays is not a good idea, nor is it a good look. What other ill-advised body marking does this man have? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, perhaps he's wearing the loot that he stole. <laughs> <laughs> Just wearing it. What do you think, Toby? What other ill-advised body marks does this crime pays forehead tattoo guy have? Uh, I don't know. Maybe an <laughs> ad beer here with an arrow pointing to his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I think he has like a full body tattoo, Kevin. That's just the black and white stripes. Perfect. Like they wear at the old timey jail. So he could be shirts and skins either way. What do you think? Uh, I think if you shaved his head, you'd see that the uh, tattoo reads crime pays. It goes around and it says, just ask Rebecca Lavoie. <laughs> well, we should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? I'm going to go with a chicken of the week this week because I'm still. <laughs> I can't uh, help it. I'm hung up on Mocha the chicken who was really channeling Rocky Flintstone, my cat, who likes to climb up and sit on like people's shoulders. So. Um, In the spirit of the holiday, Mocha, I hope you get to watch some TV shows and that the live nativity wasn't too much excitement for you. I hope so, too, Mocha. All right, Laura Bricker, people want to reach out to you and send you their suggestions for poultry or cats or lizards or maybe even a dog to be cat or pet of the week next week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and find out where they rank on your number one or number two podcast of the year list. How can they find you on Twitter? At Dan Taberski. <laughs> 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 and Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and just say, I don't know, 
Hey, what's up? How can they find you on Twitter? You say, hey, girl, I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow this show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Look for that. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media, and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Line editing is by the very handsome Henry Lavoy. Meredith Plunkett is our internet maven. And speaking of, you can subscribe to our newly revitalized kind of awesome newsletter at crimewriterson.com. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where Kevin sits with a personal air conditioner pointed squarely at his sweaty, sweaty head. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. But I mostly love anybody trolling Toby Ball online. It's my favorite thing. Oh, good. So I'm on the top of your list right now because I've been trolling Toby for like a week now. (laughs) Oh, with your flat Toby? (laughs) Yeah. Sadie thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what the other synonym for flat Toby is? What? Toby. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you could, so no. somebody on Facebook wondered how to get one. <laughs> Laura, you should you should make a print your own flat Toby kit where you like have a, a PDF of the image and just say and with directions like print this out. <laughs> Cut oh, it out no. and paste it on cardboard. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, it wasn't I didn't know that what to say. Involved. I was just like, it's a big responsibility. <laughs> <laughs>